0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Over the past few months, billions of people at one time or another have been told, stay home. Most business has stopped. Travel has stopped. Cell phone data shows that many, many people have pretty much stopped. Now, it's not an experiment anybody wanted to run, but we have run it. And for those interested in how to stop climate change, it was a revealing experiment with a big Did all that stopping get us somewhere?
1: And I think the answer for a lot of scientists and a lot of people looking at this data is it's a little bit disappointing.
0: Shannon Osaka is a reporter for Grist, focusing on climate change and science.
1: So the top projections right now are that emissions this year will fall between 5 to 8 percent. And that kind of depends on how long the lockdowns last. Mm-hmm. But if you think about that, ultimately, in order to stop climate change, we need to get our emissions down 100%. And so it can be kind of shocking to think, oh, it's just going to be 5 or 8%. Right,
0: right. So if somebody is thinking, well, gee, you know, we really want to tackle this issue of climate change, but in a scenario in which we all stop moving and a ton of people lose their jobs and industry comes to a grinding halt in many areas and things go down, carbon emissions go down five to eight percent, that that doesn't sound that good.
1: Right. And I think that part of it is that people think of carbon emissions as being mostly their car Hmm. or the international flight that they took. And the reality is that transportation is really only about 20% of our overall carbon emissions, and the rest is things like electricity, heat, industry, all of these other components that, as an individual, you have less direct control over. So in some countries that have been shut down, during the shutdown, we can see emissions go down by maybe 17 to 25% just okay. in the shutdown moment. And that's mostly from surface transportation. But all of the other emissions are still there. And the expectation is that things will rebound such that globally we only have about a 5 to 8% reduction. And so it kind of shows the need to have more structural emissions reductions. So we need to, for example, electrify the grid. That's extremely important because people are still using electricity and some of that electricity is still coming from oil and gas and coal.
0: So when we see pictures of like Los Angeles with no smog or New Delhi, you know, all of a sudden these, these cities that had been, had very sort of cloudy skies in some ways or dirty skies that you couldn't you didn't have very good visibility and all of a sudden they're clear and beautiful when we see that you're saying still that's not having much of a dent on you know global warming
1: yeah it's not having the dent that people hope that it is i think i've seen a lot of headlines saying you know, look, this proves that if we just don't move, we're solving climate change. And the reality is that it's great that air pollution is decreasing. It's Mm -hmm. wonderful that there are clear skies over LA. That's good for human health. That's good for a lot of things. But the other thing that people need to remember is carbon dioxide is invisible. So you're not going to be able to see in clear air that there's no emissions happening. And also that, you know, all of the energy we use does also have a, have a carbon footprint. And if you're in your home you know with the lights on or with your internet router on or whatever, that all has emission consequences as well. And so there's much bigger structural things that we need to address.
0: Has it taught you, seeing what's happened here, that it's going to be much more difficult to tackle climate change than we thought?
1: I think so. And I think that it's important to sort of get that message out. I think there's a tendency on the part of some people in the public to say, well, at least, you know, this is great for climate. Right. But one way to think about it is to realize that let's say that emissions this year, given that there's maybe three months of severe lockdown, if emissions this year drop by 8 percent. What we would need in order to avoid the most dangerous climate change would be for emissions to then drop another 8% the year after that, and the year after that, and the year after that. Hopefully without the lockdown. Right. And even if we did a three-month lockdown every year for the next 10 years, that would not be enough because, you know, the next year it would have to drop even more and even Mm. more. Mm. And so I think that it's sobering. But it also shows the need for really robust government policies, not just people deciding not to travel or move. Right, right.
0: I was going to ask you that. You know, when we say to people, uh, try to bike to work instead of drive, are we really taking our eyes off? I mean, you were talking about like electrifying the grid is so important. Really, the people you elect are in some ways the most important thing you can do because I mean, I have no control whether a grid is electrified or whether the the
1: electricity that I get,
0: you you know, where it really comes from. Little control anyway.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that in the climate space, there's people who are really big on individual action. And I think that it's wonderful when people bike to work, when people decide to stop flying because they know that it's a huge contributor to carbon emissions. And I think that people doing those individual actions can be very powerful because it indicates to their peer group, to their communities, that this is something really serious that we need to address. But I do think that one of the most crucial individual actions that you can do on climate change is to vote Mm -hmm. and to organize politically. So to think about who you're electing, who might have the power over making utilities go zero carbon, for example, or instituting a carbon tax. Those are really, really important things that in the long run will do a lot.
0: So six months ago, climate change felt like a huge issue. Right now, in some ways, it feels smaller, even if it's a very important issue to anybody, you know, any particular person as an individual, because our lives are just so overwhelmed by this virus and by whether it's, you know, a a sickness uh, in the family or in the city or, uh, you know, a a loss of a job. I mean, it's just so pervasive. This affects people's lives so deeply in, in a number of different ways. Do you think in some ways, does this set back the issue of climate change? Because it may be that for the next two or three years, all anybody can think about is masks and kids not going to school and, you know, and death tolls and hospitals and personal protective equipment?
1: Yeah, I think that that's definitely a concern. And it will depend on how the environmental movement responds and how politicians respond. One thing that I've been thinking a lot about is that there's going to be basically a once in a lifetime government spending, that yeah. is going to try to stimulate the economy in the post-coronavirus world. Mm-hmm. And that is an opportunity for governments around the world, and people are already discussing this, to really implement a lot of the policies that could lead to new jobs in green energy, that can lead to you know, decarbonizing the grid, that can lead to new clean energy research and development all of those things. And I think that that is where the environmental movement is going to have to turn in order to really address climate change over the next two to three years. And so I think in some ways it's concerning that people will be focusing on the pandemic and not thinking so much about these issues. But in other ways, it's a huge opportunity to really make sure that the climate is part of these stimulus packages that are going to come out in at basically every country around the world.
0: Right, right. When you think about these two issues, which in some ways have something in common, right? They're both sort of science-based problems that are epic in scale that regular people who do not have a training in science are trying to grapple with. They're trying to get information from scientists, but it's being filtered, you know, sort of through the media. Um, Are there parallels here that are useful in thinking about climate change and uh, the pandemic and sort of, you know, drawing that connection?
1: Absolutely. And I think one way to think of it is that these are both big, catastrophic global risks. Mm. And I think as individual people, we have a lot of trouble thinking about things like that. We have a lot of trouble thinking, you know, there really could be a global pandemic that could lock us all down in our homes for three months at a time. I mean, I think even if I had read an article about this possibility two years ago, I would have never really believed at sort of Mm -hmm. a deep level that it could happen. And I think now people are seeing these things can and do happen. We live in this incredibly interconnected world where a bat reaching a human in Wuhan, China, affects you know my life here in Northern California. So I think there's that. And I think that what you're pointing to is very important, which is the role of science in dealing with things that are very uncertain, that are risky, and that, you know, I mean, it's difficult for individual people. We want certainty, you know, we want people to say, if I, you stay six feet away from me, I definitely won't get the virus. Or, you know, we can definitely expect this type of extreme weather, whether it's heat waves or droughts, to change in this way because of climate change. And science is not always like that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hopeful that coming out of this pandemic, people will be learning some important lessons about the role of science and scientists in communicating to policymakers of just it's not always black and white. We have to deal with uncertainty. But at the same time, these scientists and modelers are really doing the best that they can.
0: I, I wonder finally how um, climate change factors into this and whether that is contributing to uh, seeing more pandemics or more frequent pandemics.
1: Yeah. So we know that climate change makes some infectious diseases more likely. So that can be Lyme disease, malaria, Deng, and that as temperatures rise, species are moving outside of their native ranges. Mm -hmm. So basically as climate change progresses, that is also another factor along with habitat destruction that can cause species to mix in new ways, species to encroach on sort of human habitation and get closer to us. There's not been a lot of research so far about climate change specifically causing these types of infectious diseases like coronaviruses or Mm. other kind of bat-borne viruses. But I think that that's something that we're going to have to look into.
0: Shannon Osaka is a reporter for Grist. She focuses on climate change and science. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. We've got more about this intersection between climate change and the pandemic on our website, including how questions regarding the science on both topics overlap and how those questions translate into action. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer, Elizabeth Ross, producer, Mark Sollinger, associate producer, Sarah Leeson, and engineer, David Goodman. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller and this is Innovation Hub.